0: Moment, my friend Austin's going to come out and he's going to share with us. We're actually wrapping up a series here at Flourishing Grace. We have spent all summer in um, the letter to the Hebrews. It's a it's a book in the New Testament, and uh, and so listen, if it's your first Sunday, man, you got a whole summer of sermons to binge, right? I know y'all binge sermons, right? So you can go back and you can listen to that on our podcast or find that online. But today I'm excited uh, for Austin to wrap this up. We're going to be in chapter 13 of Hebrews. And I'm going to read the text for us before um, he comes up here. And so if you would do me a favor, would you grab your Bible, Bible app? If you didn't bring a Bible, you don't have one, there's a blue one underneath your seat. We're going to be on page 1112. And we're going to read chapter 13, 1 through 19. I'm going to read that for us. And because um, we believe that this is the Word of God, out of respect and reverence for the Word of God, would you do me a favor? If you are able, could you please stand with us as I read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 19. He says this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember, those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat.
1: Good morning, everybody. Almost good afternoon. I love Being here on Sunday morning. Thank you all for coming and worshiping. I mean, I I really feel like this is like free. This isn't part of the message, but I really feel like there's just something special when the people of God come together and sing the gospel over one another and sit under the teaching of the word. It's just awesome. And so I love being here. I'm glad you guys are all here. Um, As Benjamin mentioned, my name is Austin. I'm one of the ministers here at Flourishing Grace. And today we are wrapping up the book of Hebrews, right? We are in Hebrews chapter 13. It's the last chapter in Hebrews. And it's funny because as I was, uh, preparing for this I kept being reminded of when I moved to Utah and and that's primarily because Utah's kind of a strange place uh, it's and and I think we all can maybe relate to that we've all moved to Utah um, but I was coming from Dallas and so when we got here right off the bat like in Dallas I don't think they even know what mountains are and so when when we got here we're looking around we see these beautiful mountains we're like oh my gosh this place is weird you know and then we're like driving down the road, and all the drivers are just uh, incredibly nice. Like everybody's like just nice. They're like letting me over, and they're not, they're not great drivers, but they're very nice. And, and, and so I was like, man, this is strange. Like where am I? And then we get off the road. I'm looking for a coffee shop. I can't find a single one, but there are these crazy things called soda shops everywhere. And I'm like, I don't know where I am. Like this is Weird. And so uh, we, we all kind of know what it's like uh, to move to a weird place. And the thing about moving to a weird place or living in a strange place is that uh, soon what's weird starts to become normal. And honestly, uh, for Utah, man, we love it. We love it here. I'm, I'm like, I'm happy to assimilate into Utah culture. This place is great. And we love all the cur- like quirks and kind of oddities of Utah. But, uh, but what happens when, like, our culture at large, which is kind of getting a little bit more strange, uh, starts to become more normal, right? Like out here, Utah's become normal. I have a favorite fizz drink. I use my blinker, and that's fine. Like you can say, you know, oh my heck, that's fine. You know, but, but what happens when the culture at large starts to become the thing that shapes us? And when the culture at large starts to uh, uh, become normal to us? I don't know about you, but I kind of have this like paradigm in my head for what normal is. Like if I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, what is normal? I have this kind of schema Right? And I look around at our culture and I go, this is not normal. Like, this is kind of weird. I, I heard the other day from somebody that uh, they're getting ready to throw away dress codes in middle school because it's body shaming. And I'm just like, man, that's, that's not normal, right? Like, that's not normal. But the, but the thing is, and what I, what I, my concern is, is that unless we're making a conscious effort What's, what's really weird and what's like strange in culture will start to become our normal, right? That's what ends up happening to us. Uh, we, we, we start to be shaped by the environment that we're in. And it doesn't matter how strange that environment is. If we're in it, it's going to start to shape us. And so uh, my hope this morning is that we can do what this pastor in Hebrews is doing, right? We, we've looked all the way through the book of Hebrews. Uh, chapters 1 through 10 were basically this deep theology. Uh, chapters 11 and 12 were this um, incredible exhortation. And these, this, uh, sermon, uh, Hebrews was originally a sermon written to a Jewish audience in Rome who'd converted to Christianity, and their temptation was to leave Judaism, to go and do what everyone else was doing, to be normal, right? And all the way through the book, the pastor's going, no, like, don't do that. Stay the course, because Jesus is better than any other way of living. And so all the way through the book of Hebrews, the pastor's making this appeal, and then now, He's trying to tell his people, this is how you are to live, right? Stay the course. Don't forsake Jesus for what's normal. Live differently. As, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be different. We're called to do things differently. We are a people who know that this world has fallen, right? And we are awaiting the final return of Jesus. We, we know that he's going to bring heaven to earth and make this new heavens, new earth, and he's going to undo sin. And we're kind of in this in-between place, and we're going, what do I do now? right? And our call is to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are to represent God's kingdom in our world. And if we're doing that, it's going to be a little weird. It's going to be a little different. And and that's okay. We should be a little odd. Now, I'm not saying that we should be tucking like our shirt into our underwear. You know, that's, that's a little too weird. Like, that's not what we're called to do. But there should be, in the lives of a follower of Jesus, some obvious distinguishable differences, right? We should be odd. There should be some obvious distinguishable differences. And these differences should not be hidden. They should be obvious. As people encounter us, as people engage with us, there there should be things that are different about us. And not because we're trying to parade our righteousness before men, but because we have literally been transformed by Christ and empowered by His Spirit to live differently. We should stand out as distinguished against the rest of our culture. And really, this is what the last chapter is talking about right? This is what it's talking about. It's saying, this is how you live differently. And so as we're looking through Hebrews 13, we're going to see three different ways that a follower of Jesus should live differently, that a follower of Jesus should be distinguished against the rest of the culture, right? And the, and the first way that we should have an obvious distinguishable difference, the first way that we should be distinguished is by love instead of consumerism, we should be a people who are distinguished by love instead of consumerism. And this is coming out of verses one through six, right? Verse one, it kind of sets the stage for the whole rest of this, you know, little section of verses and says, let brotherly love continue. And then verses two through six all kind of fall under this category of brotherly love. and, And they give some specific behaviors to emulate. And then they give some behaviors that we are not to emulate, some specific things that we should not do. And these behaviors that we should not do ultimately break down to consumerism, like practicing our sexuality outside of the biblical framework of marriage or, or being a lover of money, right? These are types of consumerism. And in the U.S., we already have a natural propensity towards consumerism. We are consumers by birth. That's the kind of the default setting out here is to be distinguished by being a consumer. And we are a people who have a uh, 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 tried to buy the good life, right? That's what we want to do. We want to buy the good life. Our whole country is built on this, right? That's why they gave us a bunch of free money during the pandemic, because if we stop spending, the whole thing kind of falls apart. Like our our country runs on consumerism. But the problem with this economic consumerism is because it's so pervasive, it's actually uh, entered into our heart and almost become like a worldview. We've become a consumeristic people, right? We've become consumeristic in other facets of our life. And so consumerism is basically just a form of selfishness, and it's built on the belief that I need to acquire as many things or experiences as possible in ever-creasing amounts in order to be satisfied. That's what consumerism is. And consumerism says, I will finally have the life I've always wanted when. Right? You can fill in that blank when I have the new house, when I stop driving the junker, when I get the new toy for the lake. Or consumerism can take another look and it can say, I'm going to consume people. I'm going to use people to build the life that I've always wanted or to gain the experiences that I desire. At the heart of consumerism is a sense of disoriented loves, right? We are a people who were created to love and to be loved by God. And as we experience this love from God, it will well up into us and it will overflow out of us and all around us, Right? And God should be our first and primary love. And when God is our first and primary love, all of our other loves can be rightly ordered, right? Like it's not, it's not bad to have material possessions, but it's not wrong uh, uh, to get new things. But when they become the primary objects of our love instead of God, it creates problems. Possessions and experiences, they were never meant to bear the weight of being your primary love. They're not strong enough for that. They break under that pressure, and it leaves you broken, right? Possessions and experiences cannot love you back. They cannot, they're they're not big enough to fill the hole in your heart that was intended for God's love, right? And so we're left with this vacuum that we're trying to fill with this incessant need to get more things, to experience more people, to consume we become consumers of people and things hoping that somehow they can make up for the love that God wants to pour out over us. And we're all born with that sense, right, that we need something or that something is missing from us. It's because we're born separated from God and sin. And in the U.S., many of us have bought into this lie that we can fix that by just buying the good life, by getting the things that we want. But really what we need is a relationship with God through Jesus. That is what our heart needs, Right? And not because Jesus is like this placebo or this like therapeutic thing that we can wrap our heads around to make us feel good. It's because God is real. Like there is a real God and he really created you and he really created you to f- experience the fullness of who he is and who, and, and to experience the fullness of his love. And apart from that, you're gonna always feel this whole, this sense that something is not right. And the beautiful truth is that in Christ, you don't have to run in this hamster wheel of trying to get enough stuff to be happy. You don't have to do that. You're freed from that. As followers of Jesus, we don't have to be distinguished by consumerism. We can, we can experience the love of God and be distinguished by love, right? That's what we're being exhorted to in verses 1 through 6. As followers of Jesus, we can be distinguished by love for one another, that's, that's what this first verse is talking about, this word brotherly love, this phrase. It's actually coming from one word in the Greek, Philadelphia, right? We've heard of this, a city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Um, and, and this conveys this sense of a, a love for one another, a mutual love, right? And so, so as, as the church, we should have a familial love for the person sitting next to us. This is the sort of love that doesn't use people to build up our own life, but uses our life to build up others, This sort of love seeks to serve others at the expense of self, right? It assumes the best about one another. It doesn't gossip. It doesn't complain. This sort of love provides for people in the family of God at our own expense. In the early church, it was amazing. If somebody was lacking food, the church would actually fast and use the money that they saved from buying food to to get dinner for the family who didn't have it, right? That's the kind of love that marked the early church. And as followers of Jesus, this is the type of love that we are empowered to be distinguished by. And when we are, it looks beautiful. It's something that the rest of the world wants to be a part of. And so we should be distinguished by love for one another, right? This is what Jesus said. He said, this is how they will know you are my disciples when you love one another. And that's what our text is saying. Let brotherly love continue. And so we are empowered to love one another, but we are also empowered to be distinguished by an outward-facing love as well, right? Biblical hospitality um, is so much more than inviting our friends over. This is what this pastor is saying. He's saying, don't forget to show hospitality. Hospitality in the Bible had this outward focus, right? For us, hospitality means like I'm going to make coffee, I'm going to invite people I know over. But in the Bible, hospitality meant receiving strangers, people who are different from us, people from other parts of the world, other belief systems who we may not have ever even met before and letting them come into our house and treating them like family. It's an outwardly directed love that sees people who are marginalized and mistreated and seeks to bring them into your own life and into your own home. Um, Rosario Butterfield. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's like this incredible, incredible uh, Christian thinker and, and author and, and writer. And uh, her husband's a, a Presbyterian pastor. And is she she was led to Christ through this incredible Christian hospitality. She was at Syracuse. Um, she was doing PhD studies and she was a same-sex attracted woman. And she was actually studying in that field. And there was this pastor who said, hey, hey you got to come over for dinner. I have these people over every Sunday. And, and this guy practiced just Ordinary hospitality, and you have people come over for dinner, and she came, and she came again, and she came again, and she came again, and she came again, and and eventually through this relationship, she heard the gospel, and she she gave her life to Jesus, right? And now she's this big advocate for what hospitality looks like. She wrote a book, and I love what she says. She says, um, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as a God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom, they open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, and they know that the gospel comes with a house key. Right? When we're sharing the love of Jesus, when we're sharing the gospel, it comes with a house key. It says, come, be a part of my life. Right? And when we see our homes as these castles, as these little fortresses of solitude that we don't want to let people into, right? or maybe we'll see our homes only as a place of uh, personal rest and privacy. When our homes are that, we are actually leaning into consumerism We're not being distinguished by love. And when we share our homes with our neighbors and our coworkers, we're demonstrating the gospel, and we are inviting them into the family of God, and that is the outwardly focused love that will distinguish a follower of Jesus. Another way that this text says that we can be distinguished by love is in our sexuality. This text says that marriage should be honored and undefiled. This means that us as a church, we should esteem marriage. We should be advocates for marriage. We should uphold a biblical understanding of marriage, that that marriage is an exclusive covenant made between one man and one woman to love and serve each other as a model of how Christ loved and served the church. We need to become advocates for that. We need to esteem that, right? That is one way that we can honor marriage. Husbands, you can honor marriage by leading your home in godliness and faithfulness to Jesus, right? Read your Bible with your family. Pray with your family. Lead them in that way. Not as like a tyrannical dictator, but as a servant, right? You get off work, you're coming home, and you're getting ready to start your second shift. Men, we need to be men of the second shift. We come home and we start our second shift. We help out our wives. We put down our kids, right? We love and serve our families in that way. That's a way that we can honor marriage, Wives, you can honor marriage by respecting your husband's leadership, by encouraging him in the things that he does well, and by speaking highly of him with your friends. Singles, you can hold marriage in honor among all, as the text said, by pursuing marriage, right? Now, this obviously doesn't mean that everyone's going to get married. There are some people who are called to singleness and they're going to use that singleness to serve God, and that's incredible. But the odds are, if you're single in this room, you will get married, But what we like to do in our culture is we want to push that off as far as I can, right? I want to to live my life as a single guy as as long as I can so that I don't have to be confined, so I don't have somebody telling me what to do. And that's not honoring to God. That's saying I want to pursue selfishness instead of self-denial. And so if you're single, you can pursue marriage. And in the meantime, you can practice abstinence right? Don't be a consumer who seeks to use others for your sexual gratification because marriage is a beautiful institution. It was created by God and is the ultimate expression of self-giving oneness. And sex is a gift that God gives to strengthen that lifelong covenant, right? Sex is God's designed way for a man to say to a woman, for a woman to say to a man, I belong to you completely, exclusively, permanently, and in every aspect. Right? I belong to you socially, spiritually, emotionally, and legally. And that's why marriage is the only appropriate context for sex. Marriage is the only place that's secure enough to practice something that powerful. And that's why sex without marriage is unloving. It's self-focused. It's, it's saying to somebody, you're good enough to satisfy my desires or my, my pleasures, but I won't commit to you. I won't share my life with you. I won't won't become one with you emotionally. I won't become one with you socially or economically or spiritually. I'm just going to take from you and move on to the next. Or I'm going to take from you and take from you and take from you until I'm not getting what I want anymore. And then I'm going to discard you. Sex outside of marriage or not being faithful in marriage is the epitome of consumerism. Because it reduces a person to a commodity that can be used and discarded. Pornography is, is just as bad, right? Pornography depersonalizes sex, and it rewires your brain to see members of the opposite sex as an object for your entertainment. But the beautiful thing about a relationship with Jesus is that we do not have to be distinguished by consumeristic sexuality. We don't have to be distinguished that way. We can repent We can confess our sins. We can be forgiven by God and live out a self-giving sexuality, right? A sexuality that waits until marriage. A sexuality that is free from the bondage of pornography. A sexuality that stays faithful to the person that you made a covenant with. Because sexual sin, it's like every other sin. It, It promises to please and serve. But in the end, it enslaves and it dominates. And in Christ, we have the freedom to be distinguished by love in our sexuality. And that's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. The last way this pastor talks to us about um, being distinguished is with our resources. We can be distinguished by love in our resources. He exhorts us not to be a lover of money, right? Jesus tells us very clearly in Luke's gospel, he says, you cannot love both God and money. You will hate one and serve the other. First Timothy says, you know, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Obviously, we're We're not saying money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because money is a great tool and it's a terrible master. Right? And when we love money first, we will sacrifice our relationship with God to get it. We will sacrifice our relationship with our families to get it. And we will sacrifice our relationships with others to get it. It will consume us. It is a terrible master. But in Christ, we are freed from the love of money, right? He has promised us that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And in that promise, we can find contentment because really, that's what the world's looking for, right? At the heart of consumerism is is the desire for contentment. Consumerism seeks to find contentment by acquiring more, right? Believing that one day I will have enough to finally be happy. But the truth is that contentment is not possible without Christ. We need Jesus. And so we are to be distinguished in our loves, our love for one another, our love for the outsider, the love in our sexuality, and our love with resources. And when we do that with the contentment that comes from being in a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is beautiful. It distinguishes us against a strange backdrop, against a strange culture, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, about how the the early church grew you know? Um, But the early church was not that many people, right? Maybe 500,000, 2,000 people. It wasn't a ton of people. And and it was this minor, 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 minor religion and the whole subset of religious beliefs. And yet it grew. It was persecuted by Rome. It was seen as this like weird thing by Jews. And yet it grew. There was no Billy Graham, no televangelists, And yet Christianity grew and it spread. And it's like, why did that happen? Well, it's because Christians were distinguished in such a way that was beautiful. People saw the life that they lived and said, man, I want to be a part of that. There's this uh, letter that we have. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know who they wrote it to. And we kind of estimate that it was first or second century. But it's this person who is writing about what the life of a Christian community looks like. Right? This is, this is an incredible document. It's called the Letters of Diognetus. That's what we call it. But listen to what they say. It says, as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry, as do others. They beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. And in Christ, we can be a people who are distinguished by love, who share all things, who honor marriage, who, who, who share a common table and not a common bed. And in our cultural Backdrop, this will be odd, right? This will be a little strange, but it will be beautiful and it will be attractive. And so, the first way that this pastor is telling us that we can be distinguished is to be distinguished by love instead of consumerism, right? Next, we're going to see that we should be distinguished by obedience instead of individualism. We are to be distinguished by obedience instead of individualism. And this is coming out of verses seven and 17. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And so when we hear this text, most of us kind of have this like, Weird, like knee jerk, visceral reaction. Like, oh, well, hey, man, huh, sounds, I don't like that, you know? That's, and, and, and honestly, it's because we live in a culture that is defined by expressive individualism. As an expressive individualist, uh, we are people who, who reject external norms and standards and we say, man, I want to be the one that defines my reality. I want to say what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. I want to say who I am and what my purpose is. And in the past, this is like a relatively new thing, right? Like prior to the Enlightenment all the way through the history of humanity, people found their identity, their religion, or I mean, uh, their identity, their kind of sense of morality in external structures, whether it was government or religion or families or nationalities. And, and in the Enlightenment, there's this guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he kind of took this external authority and placed it inward. And he said, I want to be the one who defines what's good and bad. And I'm not saying, honestly, there's not, that's not entirely wrong, right? That's not entirely bad. But in our culture we have become a people who, who don't allow any external authority tell us anything. Like, even if it's our own bodies, right? We don't let our bodies tell us who we are. We don't let our families tell us who we are. We don't let our employers tell us who we are. We don't let our country tell us who we are. We are the ones who want to decide exactly who we are, and we want to be our own standard setters. We want to, we want to be uh, Eric Cartman, right? We want to run around and just say, I do what I want. Like, nobody tell me what to do. We use phrases like, you know, you know do you do you, whatever makes you happy. Like I'm just finding myself. Those are all expressive individualist phrases. But here's the problem with that is that we don't have the capacity to define our own reality. We lack that capacity. We are finite human beings with finite knowledge and finite understanding, right? We're like, we're like the goldfish who's in the bowl saying, hey, I want to define for myself what's good. I want, to tell, I want to be the st- setter of my own standards, and I think it's good for me to be outside of the water. So the owner takes him and puts him outside of the water, and the goldfish shrivels up and dies, right? Like, the, the goldfish is made to be in a certain context, and the goldfish experiences the highest level of happiness inside of its bowl, the highest level of freedom inside the confines of the bowl. The goldfish outside of the bowl is not more free. And we, too, are created to exist in a certain framework And when we step outside of God's intended purpose, we are not freer and we are not happier, no matter how hard we try to convince ourselves that we are. And and here's the other truth is that, that since we don't have the capacity to define ourselves, we're going to be shaped passively by everything else. The shows you watch, the profiles you follow, the the books that we read, the news that we consume, they're they're all going to cast a vote for who you are and what you should do. And the reality is that none of them or none of us know what we should be doing, right? It's this big cycle of the blind leading the blind. And it's no wonder that stress and anxiety are off the charts here. Right? There's a, there's a sociologist out there who says that for, for a human to flourish, for a human to be happy and, uh, and flourish in their life, they kind of need three things in equalish measure. We need meaning, we need autonomy, and we need community. And what's happened in the West is that autonomy, like individualism, has gone so far off the charts, we can't give ourselves meaning and our community gets crushed. Nietzsche was the one who famously said, uh, God is dead, right? And that quote never gets finished, but what Nietzsche said was, God is dead and we killed him. And, and he didn't offer this up as like this victorious chant. He was almost a, a, a lament. Because Nietzsche knew that if God was dead, then we would be responsible for defining our own realities. And that was a scary thing for him. That was his whole like bent was to help people become this ubermensch, this this superman who was going to be able to live outside of the constraints of Christianity, right? Define meaning and purpose and morals for themselves. But you look around and Nietzsche was wrong, right? In in the age of Nietzsche's individualism, this expressive individualism, the last hundred years, we've seen more stress, more anxiety, more depression, more war, more broken families, more genocide, more division than ever. Throughout history, we are not happier as individualists. Nietzsche was wrong, and God is not dead, right? He is alive, and he is active, and it's time that we as the church act like that's true, We need to die to self. We need to die to individualism. And we need to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ because that individualism doesn't work. We want to stop being distinguished by individualism and start being distinguished by obedience to Jesus. And Jesus, He is our benevolent king. He is good. He's a good king who suffered and died so that we can have this flourishing life under his rule. And he made you. He knows you. He knows what's best for you better than you do. And and Jesus is rooting for you. He wants you to succeed. It's like like you're a bowling ball, right? And Jesus is going, man, I want that guy to hit down as many pins as possible. And so he puts up two bumpers so we don't end up in the gutter. And this text kind of tells us what those bumpers are. The first one is his word, right? We are to be a people shaped by scripture. In scripture, we see that God is a good and loving God who made this incredible world for us to enjoy. But the Bible also shows us that humanity has rebelled against God. We are a people who don't want, we don't want God's authority over us. We we rebelled and we want to have the authority ourselves. And we also see in scripture that that has never worked out. We see that in history. We see that in scripture. Scripture tells us that no one is righteous. No one seeks God. No one pleases God apart from his grace. We are all selfishly turned inward on ourselves. And because of that, because of our sin, we are under God's wrath and judgment that's a scary place to be but we also see in scripture that because god is a good and loving god he provided a place for us or a way for us to be reunited to him through the sacrifice of his son without sacrificing his justice jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve so that when we trust in him alone the work that he did alone for the atonement of our sins we can be brought back into the family of god and then Scripture tells us that when we are brought back into the family of God, we are empowered by His Spirit. We become indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and He gives us the grace to live out a life that honors Him and is good for us. That needs to be the narrative that we lean into, right? We don't need to define our own reality. We need to lean into the narrative that's been given to us in Scripture, and we need to read God's Word every day do what it says align our lives to god's word not the other way around right we don't twist scripture to make it say what we want so we can keep doing the things that we want to do we just need to conform our lives to what we read in scripture and so that's the that's the first bumper that jesus gives us to practice obedience the second bumper is is our pastors the pastors of the church Pastors are men who have been appointed by God to lead his family spiritually in godliness and faithfulness to Jesus, right? In the same way that a husband is to lead the family in godliness and faithfulness to Jesus, pastors do that for the church. Pastors don't come with their own authority. They don't come with an authority that usurps the Bible. They come under the authority of King Jesus and in submission to his word. And we see in scripture that there are types of men that pastors or qualifications for the men that pastors or, or, or lead shepherds, as we call them at, at Flourishing Grace, should be, right? Your, your lead shepherds and your pastors should be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, right? Not given to drunkenness, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, gentle and not violent, a peacemaker who's not quarrelsome. Someone who is content and not a lover of money. He must lead his family well, and he must be mature in his faith, not a recent convert. And he must be regarded well in the community. Those are the qualifications for a pastor. And scripture says that when a pastor is not these things, they are not qualified to be a pastor. And you, as the church, keep us accountable to that. But when a pastor is those things, when a pastor is doing those things, you are to come under that pastor's leadership. And we are held accountable for your spiritual life. And so a good pastor, their deepest desires is to see you and help you grow in your affections and obedience for Jesus. That's what we want, right? And I can tell you the pastors of Flourishing Grace here, all, all your pastors and your lead shepherds, their deepest desire is to see you grow in affections for and obedience to Jesus. They wanna use ministry to build you up and not the other way around. And so We are to be a people who are distinguished by obedience. Jesus gives us two tools to help do that. His word and the church filled with spiritual leaders called pastors. And when we submit to Jesus and we leverage those tools, we can be a people who are distinguished by obedience. And I think sometimes there's like this pain line that we kind of have to cross, right, to get there. I was recently having this conversation with my five-year-old. If you all know my five-year-old, you know, she's like, she's the sweetest little kid. She's super kind and super compassionate. She's this huge heart. But, like, she's just entered into this stage now, which uh, some of my, my, my parents of, like, older friends are telling me kind of lasts a while sometimes. But, but she thinks she knows better than us. Like, she, she thinks she's smarter than us, right? And so everything that we say, there's like this kind of back talk or why or this or that. And so I sat her down the other day and I said, hey, Eliana, I said, you are so smart. You are such a smart girly. She starts smiling a little bit. You know, I said, man, God has made you such a great thinker. And she's like smiling even more. But sweetie, you're five. (laughs) You know this much. That's it. And all of a sudden, this smile turns into this frown and she starts getting sad. She actually started crying, right? This reality that she only knows this much was like hurtful to her. And I said, but you know what, sweetie? God has given you dad and mom. And guess what? We know this much. And we love you. And you can trust us. And we can, you can trust us to help you make wise choices and to be happy in life. And all of a sudden, this crying started to suck back up. You know, that, that tension was broken a little bit. Because she realizes that she can trust us. and doesn't mean she's obeying yet, but at least we got this conversation in there, you know? But, but I think a lot of times, we're like the five-year-old, right? We're, we're walking around going, man, I know what's best for me. You don't have to tell me anything. And God's going, guys, you know this much. And I know infinitely more than this much. And I'm a good God, and I love you, and you can trust me. And sometimes there, when God tells us, man, you know this much, there's this pain line that we have to cross, and it's going to be hurtful. We're going to have to say, man, I have to die to self. I have to die to individualism. And what we do, we can lean into God, and there's comfort in that. Right? That tension is broken. We know, man, I can trust God. He loves me. He wants what's best for me. And so as a people, we need to be people who are distinguished by love instead of consumerism. We need to be distinguished by obedience instead of individualism. And then the last way that this text tells us to be distinguished is to be distinguished by Jesus instead of novelty. We're to be distinguished by Jesus instead of novelty. And this, this truth comes out of verses 8 through 16. The pastor starts off by saying, you know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he exhorts his people uh, to not be led away by strange teachings. And then he, he reminds his people uh, the teachings of the gospel, right? That, that Jesus was and is this atoning sacrifice and that in him we are citizens of this everlasting kingdom. And I think this is an especially timely message for us in the 21st century because we are always chasing after the new thing, right? We want the, the newest iPhone, the newest model of car, the newest house, or, or maybe we desire to be thrilled by these new latest and greatest like trends and ideas. And, and this can be dangerous, right? Like when this kind of thinking uh, uh, gets into the church and gets into us, it can look like us, you know, leaving a faithful Jesus-centered church to go be a part of the newest, latest, and greatest thing with the like, lights and the smoke and all that. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things necessarily, but when we're leaving a good and faithful church that we've committed to be a part of and going to this new thing because, because it's new, when we're chasing new instead of Jesus, that's a dangerous place to be. Because all of a sudden, something newer will come and something better than the church will come. And then if we just have this propensity to leave and follow the next newest thing, we can leave that church too. And soon, we're not in a community of faith being exhorted to live godly lifestyles. Um, We we can also see this creep into theology, right? Being distinguished by our uh, uh, novelty in theology looks like adding to Scripture, you know, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with these core doctrines that the church has always believed. Or, or maybe I don't like this ancient Christian ethic that's not up to date anymore. And so I'm going to find a new scholar that kind of tells me what I want to hear. And, 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 and this pastor in Hebrews is so clear. He says, don't be a led, or don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Paul in Second Timothy chapter four, he tells Timothy the same thing. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have their itching ear but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. When it comes to theology and to the teachings of the church, if it's not if it's new, it's not true. Right. If it's new, it's not true. If it's not the same doctrine that Jesus and Paul and John and Peter and James taught 2,000 years ago, it is not true. If it's not the same doctrine that 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 Polycarp and Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Augustine and Basil and Gregory the Great and Anselm and Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and you know John Edwards, a lot of Johns. If it's not the same thing that they're teaching, it's not true. Right. For the last 2,000 years, all Christians have believed the same core doctrines of the faith. And if it's new, it's not true. In the book of Jeremiah, the people are wandering away from God. They're they're acting in sin. They're acting in rebellion. They have this kind of fake worship. And God raises up Babylon as like a judgment against them. And then he raises up Jeremiah to try to help them to repent. And Jeremiah's exhortation, listen to this. He says, stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Find the rest for your souls there. God is saying, look, if you want to be saved, if you you want rest for your souls, Judah, don't go after these new teachings. Stay on the ancient paths and the paths that have proven good and your souls will find rest there. The Jewish Christians being addressed in Hebrews, they have that same temptation, right? They're wanting to drift back and they're wanting to to get off of the ancient paths and the pastor's saying, no, don't do that. Stay with Jesus, It says, be strengthened by grace. Don't be strengthened by the belief that you can do something to earn grace. And and I know that that message is still valid for us today, right? Be strengthened by grace. Because at at the heart of this desire for novelty um, is a desire to be thrilled, That's what we're looking for. When we're not experiencing this thriving relationship with Jesus, we look for that somewhere else. We're going to seek that thrill out in a new car or a new house or a new career or a new spouse. Whatever it is, we're going to try to find that thrill, but what our heart is actually looking for, what we're actually missing is Jesus. It just doesn't know it. Jesus and his deity, uh, we have the assurance and the security uh, that, that he is the same, right? His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. His nature and character are the same yesterday, today, and forever. His will is the same yesterday, today, forever. And yet, at the same time, we have a God who will never be fully known. Never be fully known. Jesus is so vast and so transcendent that his followers can know him better every single day and still never fully know him. Even in eternity, we're not given this sense of omniscience, right? We're still created beings. And in the new heavens and new earth, we, we we are going to know Jesus more every day, forever. We will spend forever in relationship with Jesus, discovering new facets of who he is that are all completely in line with his immutable, unchangeable character. That's incredible. We'll never get to the end of Jesus. God's character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus' work yesterday of atonement that we are clinging to today will still be valid in the future and forever. And there is hope and there is stability in that. But at the same time, Jesus is so unsearchably immeasurable that we can find novelty, the novelty that our hearts crave in him. Jesus is fully knowable and can never be fully known. And so if you are seeking out the thrill of novelty and things and experiences and pleasures, uh, uh, you, you, your understanding of Jesus is too small. You're missing out. I love how John ends his gospel. Right, he writes this whole book about Jesus, and he ends it by saying, "Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that it would be written." That's incredible. We serve a God who is. Unchangeable in who he is, and yet is inexhaustible in who he is. And so we don't need to find novelty in other things because. The novelty of God is boundless, right? The novelty of sex is finite. The, the novelty of the physical universe is limited. Pleasures and food will become bland. The, the mental pleasures that we can take in learning and in biology and in, and in you know, chemistry and physics, they're all finite and they're confined. But the essence of God and his immutable infinitude, his holiness, his glory, it's inexhaustible. We belong to to the God that can satiate us forever and ever 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 and ever, all the way into eternity. And so I'm not saying that we need to sit around and be boring and never do new things, but what I'm saying is that we don't want to be people who seek out novelty for its own sake. And as you do new and exciting things, do them as an act of worship to the one who created excitement. Write to the God who says, I am making all things new. And in that, you can be satisfied because novelty in and of itself will never satisfy you. And so as a church, we need to be a people who are distinguished by Jesus instead of novelty. Because we live in a world that is rapidly changing and, and our temptation will be to conform to it. Right to adopt the worldviews and the culture, and the answer is not to rally behind a political party. It's not to fight or argue or protest or post on social media. We are called to be odd. Right, we must have obvious, distinguishable differences. We are called to be odd, but we're not called to be apart. We want to be distinct from the world in a beautiful and attractive way in the world. Um, we talked about Jeremiah a little bit ago. Eventually, Babylon took over Jeremiah, or I mean, over Judah, right? And Jeremiah is speaking to the people again. And I love what God says to His people who are now in this weird and strange land. He doesn't say withdraw. He doesn't say, you know, confine yourself, cloister off, and become this weird community. He says build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease and seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And here's the thing, we are in exile And this is the place that God has put us here in Davis County in Utah. And so we are not to be a people who cloister off and and who huddle up amongst ourselves. We are to live in our world in a distinguished way. We want to be odd. We want to have obvious distinguishable differences. We want to be distinguished by love, our love for one another. We want to be distinguished by our love for our community, distinguished in the way that we practice our sexuality, distinguished in the way that we share our resources, We want to be distinguished by the obedience that we have to Jesus and his word. We want to be distinguished by Jesus. We want to be a people whose boast is Jesus, who find our fulfillment in Jesus. And when we are that type of people in exile, more people want to come and be in exile, right? We create a beautiful community, and that is what we are called to do. And that is my charge for you. That's what the the pastor in Hebrews was telling his people. He's saying, go, be a people who are awed but be in your city, love your city, and and put down roots and make it, you know, make it f- prosper and flourish. And so, so that's what we want to do as a church. And it's to that end that I will pray as we close out this series. Father, we are thankful for you. We are thankful that you are a good God. We are thankful that you love us, that you call us, that you've made a way for us to be in relationship with you and be reconciled to you and your son. And we ask that uh, for those of us who are in Christ, that that we would live as a people who are distinct, that are distinguished amongst our community, that we would be a people who who love you well and love others well and that it would be beautiful and that your kingdom would expand here in Davis County. Uh, We love you and we praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name.